sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinock. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Well, is it the separation of church or of church and state or the so-called separation of church and state? And here to talk about a recent appending Supreme Court case and recent oral argument is the author of a new book entitled Separating Church and State at History, Professor Stephen Green, Fred H. Paulus Professor of Law at Willamette University Law School. Steve, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Happy to be back. And congratulations on the publication of your book, Separating Church and State, A History. Very much looking forward to checking that out. We're talking about the Shirtloff case today. What was that all about? Well, Shirtless was one of these um, cases that I don't think a lot of people thought would be a, could end up being a leading case in Church and State. So um, one of those dark horses. But what this deals with is a practice at the city of Boston, outside the city hall, I think it is. And they will allow private groups to occasionally hoist flags. They have uh, three flagpoles. One has the Commonwealth flag, the other has the United States flag, and the third one usually has the city of Boston flag. But just occasionally, they will allow private organizations to hoist a flag for some type of event. Normally, these flags are related to some nation as a, a Italian day or Lithuanian day or something like that. And so consequently, they fly for a day or so just to kind of coincide with some event going on. The city's been doing this for, well, I'm trying to think what it was. The, the policy was about 12 years old until they changed it in 2018. So you do the math. But anyway, it's been around about you know, 15 years or so. Right? A very loose policy, uh, really no criteria. And consequently, they allow the hoisting over this time, over this dozen years, I think 248 flags, not necessarily always separate flags, some were repeats, but still, they had very few criteria. And so this group called Camp Constitution, which we'll get to get into them in a little bit, I assume, they wanted to hoist the stereotypical Christian flag. I think most people are familiar with it kind of is in many Protestant churches. And they wanted to hoist that on Constitution Day, which is September 17th. And they were going to have a rally outside. And the rally was going to be very much in uh, thrust of America being a Christian nation. The city rejected the application the first time they rejected any flag. And so consequently, they sued. And uh, Shirtliff lost both at the trial court and at the court of appeals. Both courts decided that because these were city flagpoles, because they were there next to the American flag and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts flag outside the city hall, that the average reasonable observer would pass by and think that the um, guest flags, if you want to call them that, were flags, entities that the city was endorsing. The city had a basically was engaged in supporting the message of those flags. And so consequently, a reasonable observer walking by on any day and seeing a Christian flag next to the American flag and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts flag would assume the city is endorsing Christianity. They also got into this concept called government speech, uh, which we can get into the reason that if you want to. It basically talks about when the government speaks itself, it basically can take any position it wants to. 
But if the government basically opens up public property for what we call a public forum to allow private speakers on the government property, then they can discriminate or have very strict limitations on what they can discriminate against. And so both courts also found that this was government speech. It basically was the government speech. And so consequently, the government can choose how it wants to present a message. You know, listening to your presentation of the facts has been very helpful to me. Um, I didn't realize that, you know, usually the flags are flown in conjunction with a particular occasion. You know, I remember growing up in New York City, we'd have the different parades on Fifth Avenue. You'd have Puerto Rican Day Parade. You'd have, you know, the Irish or, you know, whoever doing their different things. And and so I can understand how that might work in the city of Boston, where I started my college education. But the idea that a Christian flag, I mean, I suppose if it were Easter or something, you know, a traditional Christian holiday, that might be, you know, maybe a little more palatable. But to associate the Christian flag with Constitution Day is kind of like thumbing your nose at the notion that that there is anything like a separation of church and state. And it really is like, hey, this is our country. And regardless of the legal merits or demerits of the case, that's very troubling to me. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's exactly what Mr. Sherlock is trying to do. He's actually trying to communicate the exact opposite message, that he's wanting to kind of expropriate the government's blessings imprimatur onto his version of Christianity. Right. And so he was trying to say, I mean, he specifically chose Constitution Day. So he was wanting to make a statement that this is not a secular nation, this is a Christian nation. And in fact, you go look at his webpage, it is just packed full of the uh, Christian nation narrative, Christian nationalist point of view. And so he was clearly trying to make this point and was wanting to basically have the government kind of endorsing that. Now, the city of Boston had actually said, you can have your rally, you can have Christian flags at your rally, you can have it in front of City Hall. But in those instances, people will know who is actually speaking. They will know whose message that is. When you hoist a flag up there, which is going to be there for, I can't remember how long, 24 hours, 48 hours, when the rally is not in progress, then your average Bostonian is going to be walking past there, and they're going to say, wow, look at that Christian flag. And what's today? Today's Constitution. What is the city making a statement? And that's very troubling. So the case lost at both lower courts, and... Boston, I think that's the first circuit court of appeal. Yes. And, uh, you know, I'm familiar and a member of the second circuit. I've had a case up there years ago when I was in New York. But, of course, Boston's a little bit north. And now it was heard in the Supreme Court. Were you able to hear the oral argument in that case or to, to follow up on it? Well, I followed up on it. I normally don't uh, listen to the oral arguments because it's hard to identify which justice is speaking. And since they don't have a video, you never know exactly. You have to kind of play this game and guess who that is. The transcripts always come out within about an hour of the argument. And so I have reviewed the transcripts. And to maybe jump ahead to your next question, um, I don't think it went well for the city of Boston. That there seems to be a majority of the justices, if you just kind of count the comments, who feel that Boston has engaged in either what we call viewpoint discrimination or content-based discrimination. They're discriminating against religious speech. And to a certain extent, the facts are relatively compelling in some respects, right? 248 times the city has just basically signed off on some flag. All of a sudden now, 
for the first time ever, mm-hmm. they rejected flag because it's a Christian flag. And so you can see Justice Gorsuch, Justice Alito, Justice Kavanaugh, uh, all making comments about how this is discrimination against religion. So that's the way they're characterizing it. They're not characterizing as a city trying to prevent the imprimatur of government endorsement of religion. They're seeing exactly on the opposite aspect. Well, you know, what's troubling to me about that, Steve, is that what, you know, you and I grew up in an era when the Establishment Clause actually meant something. And when I say grew up, not just as kids, but in our legal careers. And now it seems like the traditional notions of separation of church and state have been tossed aside. And it's all about, well, if religion is in any way treated less favorably than something else, well, that's discrimination. And so what for us were traditional separation of church and state concepts are have now been turned upside down. And, you know, it's all discrimination whenever the state wants to distance itself and keep separate from religion. Yeah, you're exactly right. I've been teaching this now for over 20 years. And when I get to discussing the religion clauses in my constitutional law class in the First Amendment, I say, regardless of your political persuasion, and I am not an originalist, I understand. If you even have any kind of originalist, which means you go to the original meaning of the Constitution, what do the framers mean? One thing is clearly obvious, that they singled out religion for some type of distinctive treatment, right? Free exercise of religion and non-establishment of religion. They didn't say free exercise of science. They didn't say free exercise of mathematics or of art. They didn't say non-establishment of art, right? And so my old con law professor, Mark Udoff, wrote a book about government speech. And he said that when it comes to religion, it's the only type of discourse the Constitution seems to treat distinctively and seems to suggest it's off limits. It's just something the government should not be able to engage in. And so what has been happening in the last really 30 years, but now it's changed from this idea of having neutral treatment of religion to discrimination against religion, is of course to be saying any distinctive treatment of religion is now discriminatory. And it's basically turning the Establishment Clause on its head, because the whole purpose of the Establishment Clause was to say religion is distinctive. So religion clauses seen together, sometimes you should treat religion better. You should accommodate people's religious needs if it doesn't transfer any cost to anybody else. Maybe give them an exemption from a law that otherwise is neutral, right? But conversely, sometimes religion is disabled from receiving some of the same kind of public benefits because of our concerns about government involvement with religion and religious dependence on the government. Very good points. And yet, you know, when you look at the funding cases, and those are cases that aren't the focus of this particular discussion, again, it goes from a no aid to a, well, if you don't give money to the church, somehow that's discrimination. Yeah, and it's completely turned it on its head. Yeah, I mean, the, the Trinity Lutheran case from several years ago, the Espinoza case, the case is currently for the Supreme Court right now out of Maine. All of these are situations where religious entities, and actually in, in those instances, it wasn't so much religious entities, it was religious uses. It was to be a sectarian. But the court has more or less said, no, if you start enforcing the no-way concept of the establishment clause, you are de facto discriminating against religion. And so my sense is Thomas Jefferson and James Madison are rolling over in their graves with that type of logic, because that was the whole purpose. And I may be more of an originalist than you are, because I do, I'm very attached 
to that history and to the concepts that Jefferson and Madison, you know, championed, both with respect to free exercise and non-establishment. And I think that, you know, those principles we have betrayed. And, and it's shocking to me how they can be invoked somehow, that those who are turning religious freedom upside down can somehow still, with a straight face, say, well, I'm an originalist. Yeah, I agree. I'm not an originalist, but I think history certainly informs and gives us some insight into where we should be going, how we should be interpreting this. Well, and, and I would point out, too, and Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I was looking at this recently. The, the change in establishment clause doctrine and the cases in the last 20 years or so have also been marked by, you know, before then, the cases would invoke Madison and Jefferson and the Virginia experience, and then they stopped doing that. And they've changed the doctrine because they've abandoned that history. Yeah. Or maybe not because of it, but abandoning the history was part of the change. You're exactly right. I studied this a lot. And what we've seen, this has coincided with a uptick in what I call revisionist history, where you've had conservative scholars, many popular scholars, such as David Barnett, he's not a scholar. He's not a scholar. <laughs> popular writers, such as David Barnett, who've gone back and tried to show that either Madison and Jefferson were outliers, or Madison and Jefferson were completely inconsistent in what they wrote and what they did. And then also that there were a host of other individuals out there who had more accommodating or pro-establishment inclinations. So consequently, we should just ignore Madison and Jefferson. Um, part of the reason I wrote this last book, and actually the book I'm currently working on is a dual biography of Madison and Jefferson on religious freedom, is to not say they were the be-all and end-all, but they had a greater impact on our conceptions of religious freedom than any other people. Anyone else pales in significance historically. We're going to have to do another show on that very topic, but we're way over time. Our guest today, Professor Steve Green, author of a recent book on separating church and state a history. Thank you for being with us on Freedom's Ring today, Steve. My pleasure. And as we close, remember, this has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Rannock. Until next week, let freedom ring. <laughs>